Luke 17. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming, and you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. But you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Chapter 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. Nice to meet some old friends who are back and some new friends who are visiting. It's good to have you all this morning. Um, in light of you know the events and changes in our world, it seems many Christians are wondering the end of the world may be nearing. You know, it's certainly become a popular topic for Christian authors and teachers to write and talk about. One popular evangelical teacher and author is even coming out with a book in a couple months entitled, Is This the End? According, um, a description of the book reads, According to the headlines, the world is falling apart. Where is God in all of the change, chaos, and confusion? 
This book offers culturally relevant and biblical insights on terrorism, radical Islam, the new Russia, the debt crisis, and more. And maybe as I was reading this description, it kind of piqued your interest because you kind of were thinking some similar thoughts. For others, maybe you support a popular sentiment that if a certain candidate gets elected president, that's going to be the end of the world. Maybe you feel that no matter which of the two candidates get elected, either way, that's going to be the end of the world. But the purpose of this morning's message is not so much to focus on the end times or end time prophecy, but I bring it up because it's connected to the parable um, that we're going to be looking at this morning. For the end times, I just you know want to note that when we talk about Jesus' return, Jesus continually states in his teaching that no one will be able to predict when he will return. In our scripture reading that uh, Jessica just read, I mean, this is implicit. So to try to do so would be foolish. So-called experts and biblical prophecy have continually made themselves look foolish by predicting dates that never, well, that obviously didn't happen. The latest by a group of so-called experts is that Jesus was going to return and the end would come on July 29th, 2016. But now they just updated to say that it's going to happen on October 31st, 2016. But I wouldn't hold your breath on their prediction. So this week we are concluding our series on the parables of Jesus. For the fall, beginning next week, we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Philippians, which will take us through to the, to the end of December. Um, and Dr. Arthur, some of you may remember him. He was a preaching professor at Gordon Conwell who uh, helped out when Pastor Chuck was on his last sabbatical. He's going to be coming and helping uh, to helping me uh, preach through this series on Philippians. But regarding the parables, if you've been here most of July and August, uh, hopefully, and I just want to say that it's been helpful to you who've been here, who've heard many of the sermons. Hopefully we'll get a chance in the near future to cover some more of them because that was certainly uh, insightful and beneficial for me. And as we wrap up this series, um, in addition to the individual lessons that we learned from each parable, um, if you were here for the first message, remember the other takeaway was that the parables, the purpose of the parables and why they were given was that they were given to help people better understand spiritual truth from these simple stories that were made, but also they were used to hide truth from those whose hearts were hardened in Christ. And we look more into that during the first message. The first message in this series began um, with with a a parable on prayer, and now we're going to end the series by also looking at another parable on prayer, although this one will be a little more narrowly focused, as we will soon see. Um, This parable is unique to Luke. And here you have a story of a poor widow trying to get justice from an uncaring judge. And to give you a little more background regarding the the parable or the culture of that time, we're going to take a look at the the widows back then and and the judges back then. Widows back then just just suffered a, a terrible plight. When their husbands died, they were often left left with no means of support. Even if her husband left her in a state, she legally did not inherit it, although provision was made to, uh, to provide for her. 
If she made, remained part of the husband's family, she had an inferior, almost servant position. If she returned to her own family, the money exchanged at the wedding would have to be given back to her husband's family. One cam- commentator shared that widows were so victimized back then that they were often sold as slaves for debt. And because women married early back then, you know, you know, probably in their teens, their early teens, it wouldn't be uncommon to find widows as young as their 30s. So if you think about it, they suffered, you know, once again, just a horrible plight, and, and it would, could continue for many, many, many years. And on the other hand, you have this wealthy judge who could really care less about other people. It said in verse 2 that he neither feared God nor f- cared about men. The only thing it seemed he cared about was himself. And unfortunately, the judges described in this parable was one that people could understand and relate to. In a classic book titled Life and Times of Jesus, the Messiah, um, Alfred Eidersham described that a common sentiment toward the judges in in Jerusalem was that they were so corrupt that the people would change the title that was given to them. In Hebrew, some of the judges of, the, of that day had this title in Hebrew, which was Deine Gezeroth, which means judges of justice, judges of prohibition, judges who were given the duty to uphold the law. But because of the widespread knowledge of these judges being very shady, very corrupt, instead of calling them Deine Gezeroth, they called them Deine Gezeloth, which means a judge who robs people, robber judges as they were noted back then. So the, the, the judges back then were just, once again, just, just very terrible, uncaring. And so when Jesus tells this parable, the people can could, could understand where he's coming from. But the fact that the plaintiff, in this case, was a widow, meant that the judge had a cultural and moral obligation to help her. If the judge was Jewish, he would be familiar with Old Testament scripture, where God speaks of how to treat widows, Places like Exodus 22, where Jesus tells Moses, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Or in Isaiah, where God instructs Isaiah to write, learn to do what is right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So the judge obviously had you know, just a moral, cultural obligation to help. But because of his egocentric nature, he doesn't. But the widow, she doesn't give up. It says in verse 3, she kept coming at him with her plea, and eventually her persistence pays off. In verses 4 to 5, the judge declares, even though I don't fear God or care about man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so she will so she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. In the original language, uh, this term used for wear me out was actually a more active term. It was actually a, a boxing term, which meant to strike someone with a full blow. If you're familiar in, in 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul talks about how he beats his body and makes it his slave so that he may gain the prize, it's the same verb that Paul uses to say he beats his body. So the judge is saying that every time this widow comes to me, it kind of feels like she's punching me in the face, that she's just, you know, just giving me a black eye. 
And so he, he says, I'll grant her what she wants, so she'll stop beating me up, so she'll stop punching me in the face. Because of her pestering, because of her badgering, because it feels like she's just coming to beat up the judge, the judge gives in and grants her request. So that's the parable that Jesus presented. And so now what, what's the point? Why did he tell this parable? In one sense, it's clear because Jesus makes it quite clear. Verse 1, that Jesus told his disciples a parable to show that they should always pray and not give up. So the point of the parable is to keep on praying, right? Yes, but there's more to it. Because we have to read the parable in light of the context that it's written in. And we heard much of the context through the scripture reading. The Pharisees, though they have many issues with Jesus, though they don't agree with Jesus on probably anything, they knew that Jesus spoke on the kingdom. And they knew he had a claim in bringing about the kingdom. So in Luke 17, verse 20, they ask him, you know, when would it come? What signs would accompany it? And in response, Jesus gives a more detailed description of some of the things they should expect. And then verse eight, or chapter 18 comes. And it begins, Then Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Then. So when he instructs them to pray and not give up, he's telling them to pray with a specific focus. And that is to pray for the end to pray for the end to come and pray that we can endure to the end. You know, maybe you are unsettled by the times we live in, you know, with incidents of terrorist attacks around the world, the spread of ISIS and radical Islam, the devastation of wars abroad, seeing values in the U.S. erode to adopt things that are clearly unbiblical. I mean, what is one to think? What is one to do? Once again, Jesus would tell you through this parable, the answer is to pray. To pray for Jesus' return. For it is only when Jesus returns and his kingdom established that there will be truly complete restoration and redemption. And from this parable, one more point needs to be made about prayer. And that is our prayer should be persistent, but not pestering. Pestering, or not pestering, but persisting. You know, in the past, when I've heard teaching on this passage, the teachers would often make a point that is incorrect. And when I think really back on my ministry, at times when I've taught on this passage, I also followed this incorrect thinking. And this thinking is that a lesson to draw from this parable is that God is telling his followers to be like the widow and just badger God, like the widow did with the judge. As the judge felt like the widow was wearing him out with her constant plea, like as the judge felt like the widow was beating him up with her pleas, so we should wear God out with our pleas. So we should, you know, kind of keep coming to him and badgering him, so like we're beating God up. But, but that's not a legitimate point of the parable. And the reason is such that God is not like the unjust judge. The judge didn't care for anyone except himself. But God is caring and merciful and gracious. 
As with the first prayer uh, parable we looked at, if you remember, we looked at Luke 11 in the first message. This parable is these parables are what are called the lesser to greater or the how much uh, how much more parable. And the point is that if a wicked judge who could care less about this poor widow would finally grant her justice, how much more would God, who is all gracious and merciful, grant the request to those who come to him? That's what verse 7 to 8 says. You know, it says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So once again, our prayers are not to be pestering where we feel we need to work at out, but they should be persistent. They should, we should feel an urgent need to come to God with our requests. Now, you know, when I read verse 7 and 8, maybe some of you would respond back. Well, if what you say is true, verse 8 says that God will see that the prayers get justice and they will get justice quickly. But if that's the case, why doesn't this seem to be true? Why have people prayed and justice hasn't come quickly? Jesus hasn't returned yet. Well, two responses I would give to that. First, the word translated quickly in verse 8 can also be translated as suddenly. And this latter word actually seems to be more in line with what Jesus is teaching. You know, once again, Jesus in the latter part of Luke 17 is teaching about what it will be like when the end comes, when Jesus will return. The Pharisees are asking, you know, when will it happen? What should we expect? And Jesus explains that his coming will be unexpected. For example, in verse 28, he says, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, um, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven. And what he means by that is that people were just going about their normal business. They were going about their normal routine. And then, bam, judgment came. And it was over. Verse 34 and 35 of Luke 17. I tell you, on that night, two people will be, in, will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. In other words, once again, people were just going about their normal routine. Then one was suddenly snatched and the other left behind. So for verse 8 of Luke 18, we can make the case that what Jesus actually said and meant was not that his followers would get justice and quickly, but that his followers would get justice and when it comes, it would come suddenly, it would come unexpectedly. That's the first response to that question. A second response would be that it does indeed say that those praying would get justice and quickly, but the reason that justice hasn't come yet in the form of Jesus' return is not because God is uncaring and unmerciful, but precisely because he is caring and merciful. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 9 support this. Peter writes, but do, not, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years 
or like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, in this case of bringing justice, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So though though the Lord indeed does want to fully establish his kingdom and come and reign, he refrains from doing so in order that more people can be saved and come into the kingdom. Because once he comes, it will be too late, and those not part of the kingdom will be left out. But whichever response you support, you know, the point still remains that we are to pray for the end and we are to do so persistently. So understanding the parable and the point of the parable, what's the takeaway for us besides the need to pray? And I believe the greater challenge for us, the thing we should ponder, is Jesus' question at the end of verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus is telling his listeners that they need to persevere until the end. They need to persevere until he returns. Back in verse 34 to 35 of chapter 17, when it describes two people going through their normal routine, one will be left, one will be taken away. You know, his disciples ask in verse 37, Where, Lord, where will the one left go to? Jesus replies, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. The contrast that Jesus is making is that the one who will be gathered at Christ's coming will be saved, while the one who is left behind will not be saved. They will be destroyed. So Jesus is teaching that we need to persevere so that we will be like the ones taken away and not like the ones left behind. But what does persevering mean? From this passage, I think the takeaway that our perseverance is reflected by our prayer and preparation for the end. Perseverance is reflected by our prayers and preparation for the end. Once again, going back to Luke 17, Jesus compares his coming with how it was in the days of Sodom with Lot in verses 28 to 29. And then right before it, he, talks, he compares it to how it was in the days of Noah before the flood. And if you're familiar with these stories, you know that these were you know, two great times of judgment. And as it was described in our passage, as I just mentioned, people were just going about their daily routines, trying to maintain a comfortable life on earth. In verse 27, people were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Verse 28, people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They were all trying to do what they could to maintain and build a comfortable life on earth. In fact, they saw no point to do otherwise. During Noah's time, though Noah may have warned them about impending judgment, they thought he was a fool and he was wasting his time. And as such, when judgment came, they were all swept away by the flood. So when Jesus is asking, will he find faith on earth? He's telling his listeners not to be like those who were so tied to earthly things that they weren't ready and they lost everything in the end. 
He's teaching them in verse 33 that if you try to save your life on earth, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you will save it. So as we go about our normal routines, you know, and as how we use our time and resources reflect more of a desire to secure a comfortable life here on earth, it does that reflect a desire to prepare and be ready for the end whenever it may come. It's Matthew 6, right? Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth or more. Moss and vermin destroyed, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is telling us to be prepared for the end. And related to prayer, I think Jesus speaks much about it through this parable because it's often a neglected request. When I attend group meetings where we pray and prayer requests are shared, requests always take on a somewhat predictable character. You know, we pray for one another's needs, such as health concerns, travel mercies, upcoming deadlines for work or school, family needs. Maybe every so often you'll have a request to share Christ with a friend or family member. Current disasters or headlines can also enter the mix But prayer concerns reflected in this parable are hardly ever prayed for. You know, justice for the oppressed and persecuted, Jesus to return and his kingdom fully established. You know, not that other things aren't important to pray for or shouldn't be prayed for, but it's these latter items that Jesus teaches here we should be praying for persistently and urgently. You know, it has to be more than, you know, when we just pray the Lord's Prayer and say, you know, thy kingdom come. You know, we need to include these, Jesus is telling us, in our prayers to pray for his return and to do so with regularity, with persistence. In a book he wrote, John MacArthur asked, are we faithfully praying for his return? I suspect if Jesus were to come right now, he would find multitudes who call themselves Christians who are totally unprepared for him, not particularly eager for him to come, and too enthralled with this life and worldly values to think much about it. As I reflect on my past prayer life, I often remember that when I was in university, um, we would pray for Jesus to come and to come quickly, um, but it was often at the end of the semester during finals week. And we would pray for Jesus to return so that we wouldn't have to take finals. And we did so with, you know, obviously, selfish motives, not with a real desire uh, for him to come, although we, we did want him to come so that we wouldn't have to take finals. But, you know, outside of that, that was the extent of my praying for Jesus to re- return or my desire for Jesus to return. Because, like MacArthur said, I was too busy trying to build my life on earth. I'm trying to make sure I establish my comfort and meet the goals that I set on earth. But you know, if we truly have our hope in Christ, we should long for his coming. Because it's, the only, it's only at that point, as I mentioned earlier, that everlasting peace will be established. That we won't have to worry about terrorist attacks, the Zika virus, you know, wars. You know, Satan will be dethroned. God's kingdom will be fully established. 
and God will be glorified. You know, as John writes at the end of Revelation, he says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. And I hope this would be our desire and our prayers that we want Jesus to return and to come quickly. And that we will be prepared for that. Because as he teaches, it won't come suddenly. It won't come unexpectedly. So as we reflect on this parable, let us remember to pray for the end. And pray that we may be prepared for the end. And let us do what we must do to show that our values and our priority is to prepare for Jesus' return, more so than just preparing a comfortable life here on earth. Let us pray. Father, we admit that often this, the headlines and this constant influx of news that we get in this age of instant information is very unsettling and makes us very anxious. You know, we just you know, wonder when the next terrorist attack will happen. We read about what's going on in Syria and just see the pictures of the, the innocent victims, especially the children. We read about what's going on in South Sudan and just the terrible plight of the people there as they try to escape civil war. And we are unsettled just by news of the economy and and just trying to make ends meet sometimes. Lord, in spite of, well, through these events that may cause us anxiety, Lord, may it cause us to turn to you and pray and pray for your return and long for your return. Lord, we do ask that you all come As John says in Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Because we want your kingdom established. Because we want you to be glorified. And because we know, too, that it is at that point that we will be with you. That we will be with you who is our treasure and our joy. Lord, teach us how we may greater long for this, more so than whatever comforts or treasures we seek to build on earth. And probably things in Jesus' name. Amen.